You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. That you'd help us that we would not hear sounds or symbols or noises, but that your word today would come with power, with full conviction, and with your Holy Spirit. This is we what we pray through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. What a fantastic day for you to worship God and to start your week off worshiping God. You know, the Bible can be a very intimidating thing when you show up at a hotel room and you pull open a drawer and there it is. Or you go to your grandmother's house and she has a big, gigantic one that's thick and huge. You wonder how in the world he opened this thing. The Bible can be intimidating. And and for us here at First Christian, we're going through the whole thing in a very short period of time. This is our fourth week as we look at the story of God. And we start to get into areas that are unfamiliar to stories and connections that may not be as recognizable to you. But one thing that is recognizable is whenever things don't go well. And that's where we get to in the story today. Sometimes in our lives and in the story of God, life sucks. It's not good. It just doesn't work out the way we want. It's not coming to fruition the way that we like. And so we look and we say, how in the world is God showing up? And when we say this, we mean my life, right? Where is God in my life? How is God going to show up? And our eyes don't see the God who creates us or who covenants and makes promises with us, who wants to deliver us or to lead us forward. Instead, we see what's going on in our life. And we kind of shake our fists and we say, I'm being faithful. I'm being good enough. God, why don't you show up and fix these things that are not going well in my life? Well, I'm going to provide some really practical insight to that. And I'm going to also walk us through a bunch of stories, stories of Scripture that carry us forward. Oh, when we last left the story, the monarchy, the kingdom, was in full power. The people of God, the the Israelites, had their glory years in terms of King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And the story begins to take a turn, especially with Solomon's death. I mean, you get the sense that Solomon's going to be able to pull this off because his dad, King David, commissions him. Give your heart to the covenant. Give your heart fully to the Lord, to Yahweh. Remember him always. Dedicate yourself to him. Even in the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.23, Solomon says, O Lord God, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and steadfast love for your people who walk before you with all their heart. Is that becoming a familiar refrain for some of us in our small groups? That's our prayer. That's what we say together. And it's what Solomon said at the dedication of the temple. I mean, he seems to have it all together. He says at the dedication of this grand temple that he builds, God, you don't live in houses like this. You prefer to dwell in darkness. Ooh, mystery. That is someone who understands 
something of scripture that gets missed by a lot of us who read it. Do you realize that the temple is called the place where the name of God dwells? God doesn't dwell there, doesn't dwell and is confined into sacred spaces. It's the place where his name well, dwells. It's the place where we lift up his name. So while Solomon seems to get it, the monarchy still begins to fade. The country begins to fall apart. And today that's where I want to go in this story. I want to talk to you about three tragedies, three things that unfold that begin to see the collapse of God's people. And the first one is this united kingdom becomes divided. At Solomon's death, he commissions his son Rehoboam to take over, or his son Jeroboam to take over the southern capital of Jerusalem. But his other son, Rehoboam, you know, they're those kind of parents. They like to make rhyming names, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. His other son takes a divided approach. And so we have the northern kingdom of Israel with the capital of Samaria and a southern kingdom with its capital of Jerusalem. So this first tragedy begins to change things where it begins to just fall apart. If you look in those northern kingdom, those ten tribes in Scripture, as it interprets things, there are no good kings. They're all bad. They're all turning away from Yahweh. In the southern kingdom, those two little tribes, those Jerusalem, there are a few good kings, but they're kind of sprinkled in, and there's plenty of bad kings there. All right, so that's the first tragedy. The next two tragedies I think of as two towers that fall down, kind of twin towers that makes this fall down. And this second tragedy is what happens in terms of the falling of the northern kingdom. Now, I don't like to give dates. I mean, in history class, I didn't want to ever keep up with the dates. But today, I'm going to give you two dates. It's probably the only dates that I'm going to give you in the entirety of this series. The first is this, 722 B.C. This is the 8th century, 700 plus years before Jesus walks the earth. That is when the Assyrian armies, who were, they were the global power at the time, come sweeping down and they take over that northern kingdom. Take over Israel, conquer Samaria, its capital, and it wipes it out. Now, not only was the kingdom divided, but here in this second tragedy, with the fall of the northern kingdom, you see that people's actions don't really line up with their faith, with their belief. You see the decline. Now, here in this place, they get the sense that just because we are God's people, that we were actually going to receive God's blessing. We didn't see a sense of, oh, well, you know, I'm going to live in this comfort and privilege of being God's people and not thinking that I have to act like and live in faithfulness to what God has called us to be. Well, that's the, that's the second tragedy. That's the first tower to fall. The third one is the fall of the southern kingdom. This happens in 587 B.C. 200 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple that Solomon dedicated is pulled apart stone by stone. The whole town is taken away. This time, 200 years later, the world power is the Babylonians. And they move in and they do what was thought unthinkable. Now I want to tell you two, two kings. Two kings from this southern kingdom. Manasseh was probably the worst king 
in Judah's history. They were awful. He was an awful king. Just to give you a flavor for what kind of a parent he was, he, he uh, worshipped other gods, obviously, sacrificed to other gods, um, included, including sacrificing his own children to those other gods. He, in the temple of Yahweh, not only worshipped Yahweh, but set up a large Asherah pole, a big idol in competition with Yahweh. Manasseh was a bad, bad king, probably the worst. And yet, even all of that, he still clings to the promises of 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25, that God would never leave this place where he hung his name. So even though he was worshiping other gods, he still clinged on to the fact that God was going to protect him. That's one king. I want to tell you also about his grandson, Josiah. You might remember this guy because he was a young king. Started when he was eight years old. A lot of bad things had happened. He didn't really know a good kingdom when he came into it. And so he has his people kind of clean up. They're cleaning up around the temple, and they find something, a book, a book of the law. Probably the book of Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. And so he has it read to him, and he begins in hearing this to realize they aren't following any of the things in the law. And Josiah brings all of these reforms. He begins to clean up the country. But even though you have those two kings, a worst and a best, it still falls apart in 587 B.C. And the tower falls so what do you do with this, with these tragedies? When the people of God wonder, well, what are we supposed to do with this information where God's abandoned not only the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom? Not only the capital of Jerusalem, but the temple that we worship in. What are we supposed to do? Well, the people that I want to spend the most of my time talking about are the prophets. The prophets of God have been there all along. These these are people that are spokespersons for God, mouthpieces for God. They are called by God to announce the words of God. They've been the ones that all through these years, whether it was judges or kings, whoever was ruling at the time, they were pointing back to the true leader, to God being the leader. Here these prophets were something of a conscience for the nation, calling them back to serve God. Now, they were folks that really bore in their body by being thrown into pits and beaten and killed the results, the consequences of sharing these messages from God. Now, who were they? They had a couple of, of tasks, a couple of ways that you could understand who they were. They weren't foreigners, Deuteronomy 18. They were from inside the people of God. They were a group of people who were also uh, anointing the kings, King Saul and King David were anointed by Samuel the prophet. And they were also, third, foretellers. Now this is how we tend to use prophecy, foretelling the future. We kind of think of them as having crystal balls or some kind of insight into the future. I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament scriptures, only 5 or 10% of prophecies only speak about the future. The majority of prophecies always have things that are to be spoken of at hand. They, they're consequential in the here and now, which brings me to their fourth attribute, which is forthtelling. They tell things that matter now, not just later, but something that can guide the people in the present tense. 
In some ways, they're a lot like preachers. Preachers who are interpreting the words of God and bringing a message that's relevant for today. You know, we can think about the New Testament of Peter or Paul, folks like that, but there were also people speaking like Phoebe, who proclaimed the message of Romans on behalf of Paul, or Philip's daughters in the Corinthian letters, who were prophets, or others in the New Testament who had this gift of prophecy of bringing not just a word that was relevant for the future, but a word that's relevant in the present moment. Now, some of these prophets just have their names mentioned. They have stories told about them, like Elijah and Elisha, or Nathan the prophet, or Abijah. They just had stories that they were told and included in. Others were authors. They were the ones putting down writings that were shared with the people. If you look in the table of contents of your Bible, you'll see them grouped, and sometimes there's headings like major prophets and minor prophets. They're at the backside of the Old Testament. Well, the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is kind of surprising. Major prophets are long-winded. That's the difference. They're the big ones. They're just all clumped there together. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. They're just the long ones. And the minor prophets are the shorter ones. And these people all existed at different times. Sometimes they overlapped. They're not in a chronological order. And so I want to tell you, some of their methods were creative kind of crazy. Some of them walked the streets naked. Yeah, that's, that's right. Some of them gave metaphors like uh, a metaphor of a, of a grape, where God is the vineyard and he's trying to raise up grapes, but instead of getting good grapes, he gets wild grapes, us, people that don't act exactly correctly. Sometimes these messages were, you know, a message like Jeremiah got as he went to the potter's house and is molding clay in Jeremiah 18, giving a metaphor that they were very familiar with of people being moldable or not being moldable and having to be thrown away. In Isaiah, there you get another image that's very familiar to us of the shepherd, where God is the shepherd leading the way. Now, th these metaphors and creative images they don't really connect with us. You probably have only been to a pottery place maybe once in your life or seen something on television. You may not be raising grapes with some exception, right? They took metaphors and images from the time that they were existing and were able to translate the word of God through them. Two stories, a northern prophet and a southern prophet, a minor prophet and a major prophet. Let's start with Hosea. I want to give you an example, and he is a great one. His whole life, Hosea, was a metaphor. In fact, this is what God told him to do. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Oh, really? Now, that's a story for a whole other day. The story that I'm choosing for Hosea, this man who married a prostitute, is from Hosea chapter 11. It's a story that is told of God being like a parent going to the grocery store with his child. I don't know if you know this, maybe your children are old enough to where you don't even remember this, but kids like to run away from their parents, usually at any opportunity, and they cackle and laugh. Why? Because they like to be chased. They like to grab their parents' attention. They like to maybe even 
be hugged, and they'll do whatever it takes to run away. Well, in this story, God is the parent, and Israel is running away because they don't want to be caught, and God lets them run away. That's one of the messages from Hosea, a northern prophet who's a minor prophet. Another one is R-rated, so if you need to plug your ears, close your eyes, go ahead and do that. This one comes from one of my favorites, Ezekiel. It's a story that most people have not heard from Scripture because it is so graphic. Ezekiel 16, and here's how the story goes. There are two parents of foreigners who get pregnant and have a baby. They're ancillary countries to Israel, but they're to represent Israel. They decide they don't want the baby, so they do an ancient Near Eastern abortion, which is to have the baby in the field. You cut the umbilical cord and you walk away, and that's it. Two parents gone and out of the picture. And along comes God strolling through the field and finds this baby, this baby girl flopping around in her own blood. God picks up the baby, cleans up the baby, trims the umbilical cord, cleans her, feeds her, raises her. And she becomes a beautiful girl, a beautiful woman with curves in all the right places. Think pinup model. She's fantastic. She's a princess. And he treats her as such. Her heart is so inclined to this one Yahweh who found her that they enter into marriage. I know, sounds a little creepy, but they enter into this covenant of marriage and he treats her like a queen. Anything she wants, food, clothing, places a crown on her head, she is his prize. But she gets bored, as you do, tired of all the protection, and begins to chase other lovers outside of her marriage, having children with other people, and taking those children and sacrificing them to other gods. That's the story, the rated R story of Ezekiel 16, of God's love for a child. Now, when we come to a story like this, it gets closer to how we might feel about God's involvement in our life. Because we look around and things don't seem to be going well. Either God's not chasing us, or God has left us and abandoned us. In these times in our life, we need people to come into and speak words from God. We need the prophets to help us make sense of how our life is not what it should be, and we ask questions of God, and we need some kind of interpretation. And that's what prophets do. They come in and they knock down the towers of what we trust. Prophets come in and they begin to cut through all of our self-absorption and how the world is meant to be for us and begin to push us outside of ourselves. They let us know that our story is not the only one that we're not disconnected from everyone that we come in contact with. In fact, we're a part of everyone else's story. I might even say it like this, that the things that you do and what happens to you become a classroom, a divine classroom where God is doing work in your life, even through things that suck. 
even through things that are terrible. God is at work trying to pull us closer. And what we bring to that equation is often our own unfaithfulness. We're not reliable. We're not committed. We're not trustworthy, and we're certainly not trusting God. In fact, I've got two things that I really want to express to you about unfaithfulness. I, I promised on the front end that I would share these things that may fit well in your life. The first thing that I want to say about unfaithfulness is that unfaithfulness sometimes leads to judgment or consequences. Our unfaithfulness leads to these consequences and events in our life that sometimes are our fault and sometimes they are the fault of other people. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to get. There are consequences right now at work in your life that's due to the unfaithfulness of you and others that are due to the unfaithfulness of others. Let me give you an example. King David had an affair, got a woman pregnant, tried to kill her husband, broke just about every one of the Ten Commandments in just this one scene in his life. And when he looked at his life and when he saw his family begin to come apart and when he saw that baby die, he could look in the mirror and say, you know, that's right, it was me. He was able to do that because a prophet came to him and said, look, you're the one that did these things. There are consequences for what David did that affect David. Are you with me on that? There are also consequences of that story that weren't anybody's fault. Those kids that grew up in David's home, that were a part of that severed and broken and fractured family, was that their fault? Did they have any reason to, to blame themselves? No, it wasn't their fault. The child that died, was it its fault? No. There are things that happen in our lives that are the result of other people's unfaithfulness, not our own. Same thing with Solomon. The prophets will look and they will say the kingdom came apart in part because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, of trusting his political alliances by marrying all these wives, right? You've probably heard that before. You even heard me say it last week. But yet were all the people in Israel unfaithful? Should all be punished because of what Solomon had done? I think you're getting what I'm saying. In our life, there are sometimes judgments and consequences that are our fault. They've come to us because of decisions that we make. And sometimes, a lot of what sucks in our life is the result of what other people have done. Which brings me to the second thing that I want to say about unfaithfulness. In either one of these cases, whether it's our responsibility or not, we have a choice. And that choice is our response. Are we going to blame other people or are we going to own our contribution to things? So here's what one could do. Sometimes Christians will look back at the Old Testament and say, oh, the Jews just didn't have it all together and we'll blame them. Or maybe contemporary to David or after David, they could say, ah, it's all David's fault. It's Solomon's fault or it's Eve's fault that everything came apart right? We all stand naked in the garden, usually blaming other people. If we think about what happens in a fight, that's often where we 
quickly go. If someone has wronged us, we're quickly going to point it out. We want them to apologize for what they've done to us. And what I'm saying is that you can't solve someone else. You can't fix them. Blaming is only one part that you do, and it's not going to get you very far. What you can do and what you can control is yourself and how you own your contribution to the fight. That's what you can control. That's how you can make a difference, to be able to own your actions. And yes, I know, all through Scripture, we could come up with all kinds of examples where Israel and Judah blamed the fact that they had judges who weren't a king. Or when King Josiah says, hey, I reformed the whole country, and yet the country still fell away. Or Jeremiah, who says, you know, I preached these messages from God, and yet it still landed me persecuted, attacked, and rejected by these kings. I know that there are things that happen to us that are not our own, but we can own our own contribution to this to enter into the classroom that is life and let God teach us. I'll tell you there's some pretty amazing endings to the stories that I just let hang. The story of Hosea and the kid running away. Do you know how that story ends? God is this parent and the child is running away and has no intent of being caught. God is personified as the lion where he roars and the child freezes and comes back to Yahweh. That's how Hosea 11 ends. In Ezekiel 16, I want to read to you how this particular story ends. And I want you to listen closely to how the prophet Ezekiel words this. Ezekiel 16, 59. Yes, thus says Yahweh God, I will deal with you as you have done you who have despised the oath, breaking the covenant, yet, yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Did you catch that? God says, yeah, I'm going to deal with you based on what you've done. There are consequences for the things that you do. They just naturally happen. Life has consequences. But I, says God, am going to remember the covenant that I made to you in your youth, and I'm going to hold true to it. It's going to be an eternal covenant. Now that's amazing. That is amazing. That's breathtaking. But this God, where sometimes we feel like life has fallen apart and the creditors are coming to get us, and God says, Nope, the grace period has just begun. Or when a dad and a mother look at a child and like, I don't want it. God is the one who comes in and says, I do. God is there to continue this covenant, a covenant that we're unfaithful to, and to show that his unfaith our unfaithfulness is an opportunity for God's great faithfulness. And so I invite you into this story. Not to blame God. Certainly there are things in our life that are not going as they should. And maybe there are some things we can accept responsibility for. Instead of blaming God, I'm inviting you to seek God and enter into relationship with a God 
who wants to establish an eternal covenant with you. Let's pray. Eternal God, maker of heaven and earth, you are a God who has created every single one of us. God, you love us. God, you have said that you want to live in us. And so we thank you. We thank you for making us, for loving us, and wanting to live with us. And we pray that you'll make that more and more possible through the power of your Son, who lived among us and showed us what life with you looks like. Would you please fill us with your Spirit to let us know that our unfaithfulness is not the end of the story, but is the moment at which we have a choice. A choice to own what we have done, a choice to recognize that, that others have failed you too, and a choice not to blame, but to take responsibility for what we've done. God, we pray that in the name of Jesus, you will help us to find forgiveness and live forgiven lives. Through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.